This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World. Episode 49, The Battle of Agincourt. We are now almost 70 years after the Battle of Crecy, where the English defeated the French against the odds. The site of this week's battle is around 30 minutes drive northeast from Crecy, just over the border from the Somme department to the Pas-de-Calais department, all of which is in the Hauts-de-France region in the north of France. As we discovered in the episode about the Battle of Crecy, this area of Europe was occupied by a peoples called the Belgi and the first historical reference to these people was from the pen of the Roman military statesman Julius Caesar. Caesar had invaded Gaul during the 1st century BCE and the Belgi were on the northern fringes of the lands of the Gauls. Caesar recognised the cultural and linguistic uniqueness of the Belgi and he also noticed that they were very brave and by comparison to the Gauls, rather archaic. Despite the bravery of the Belgi, the power of the Romans was too much for them to prevent domination. The Belgi were quite remote from the centre of Roman power much further south but the Belgi would obtain support from the Romans in defending their territory from the aggressions of the Germanic tribes to their east. Roman influence would start to change the Belgi culture into a hybrid culture. The province would be called Gallia Belgica and it would exist right up until the 5th century when the Roman Empire would start to collapse and many of the Gallic lands were overrun by Germanic invaders from the east. The Germanic tribes who entered the coastal lands of Gallia Belgica were the Franks and at the close of the 5th century a great Frankish king called Clovis would bring the Frankish tribes under one rule and start to establish a new kingdom of the Franks with imperial expansionist ambitions. The Kingdom of France the Kingdom of France can find its roots in the Kingdom of the Franks established by King Clovis at the end of the 5th century. When Clovis took control of Aquitaine in 507, his kingdom would resemble that of the modern country of France. 
After Clovis's lifetime, the Frankish kingdom would go through a series of being split between the children of the previous king and subsequently being unified under the strongest or longest living of those children before being split again. This cycle of events would continue throughout the 6th and 7th centuries. During the 8th century, the Frankish kingdoms would face a new threat from the south in the shape of the Umayyad Caliphate, who had expanded across North Africa from the Middle East and then crossed the Strait of Gibraltar, heading north and right into the heart of Frankish territory. The Frankish military leader Charles Martel inflicted a defeat on the Umayyads at the Battle of Tours, in 732 and now the Franks had to be considered as one of the great kingdoms of Europe. Charles Martel was not the king of the Franks though, he was not a member of the royal dynasty so he could not be the king. He was doing everything that a king would and should do though, with the kings of the true royal Merovingian dynasty basically doing nothing. Charles Martel's title would be the mayor of the palace and he would ensure that his family would at least inherit this title. Following the death of Charles Martel and later on in the 8th century, his descendants would receive permission from the Pope to rule the Franks in their own right as the Carolingian dynasty and the Merovingians would be discredited. The grandson of Charles Martel was Charlemagne and Charlemagne would make great territorial and political advances, invading new lands and establishing new relationships and understandings with neighbouring monarchs. He would become the King of the Lombards, and the Pope was so impressed with him that he proclaimed Charlemagne as the first Holy Roman Emperor, an official protector of the Roman Catholic Church. In the 9th century, the kingdom of the Franks needed to be split fairly between the rival grandsons of Charlemagne. So the 843 Treaty of Verdun established three new states which were West Francia, Middle Francia and East Francia. Much of Middle Francia was consumed by its two neighbours but East Francia was the beginning of what we can recognise as Germany while West Francia is the beginning of what we can recognise as France. Ginkoloman II of West Francia died without heir, so the new king of West Francia was the East Francian king, Charles the Fat. Charles the Fat did a poor job of defending Paris against the Vikings, so Count Odo of Paris put himself forward to be the next West Francian king, and when he successfully acceded, he would be the first king to break the continuation of the Carolingian dynasty of rulers. Odo was a Robertian, which is seen by historians as the ancestral dynasty of the Capetians. The Viking raids on northern France resulted in the West Francian King Charles III granting lands to them on the north coast at the beginning of the 10th century and this marked the establishment of Normandy which would later become a duchy in its own right. With there being differing degrees of autonomy and independence from the duchies and counties in and around the Kingdom of France, the next few centuries were really all about nursing the relationships France had with Normandy, Brittany, Burgundy and Aquitaine. 
An important turn of events for the French came during the 12th century when King Louis VII could declare himself as the Duke of Aquitaine on the basis of his marriage to Eleanor, the Duchess of Aquitaine. But then the marriage was annulled and Eleanor married the heir to the English throne, Henry Kirtmantle. Henry had recently inherited a large amount of French territory following the death of his father, Geoffrey Plantagenet, Count of Anjou. Henry became the new Duke of Aquitaine and then the new King of England, ruling as King Henry II. Now, very suddenly, the monarch of England had a lot of power over various French territories. The French would have to wait until the 13th century before gaining control over much of these territories back from the English after defeating a combined English and Flemish force supporting the Holy Roman Empire at the Battle of Bouvines in 1214. France was now the stronger country out of the two and were dominant for the rest of the 13th century. There was a lot of resentment among the English and the Flemish towards the French and the French welcomed an alliance with another of England's enemies, Scotland, by forming the Old Alliance at the end of the 13th century. So the French king, Philip IV, agreed with the English king, Edward I, to a political marriage between their children, in order to reach a peaceful resolution over the continental lands that England still had a claim to, such as Gascony, a region of Aquitaine so Isabella of France would be married to the future King Edward II of England. When all of the male descendants of King Philip IV died out, he had just one more grandson left, the son of Isabella and King Edward II of England, King Edward III of England. Should Edward be allowed control of the crown of France, then there was no telling what the English would do so the French nobles selected Edward's cousin as the new king, citing a technicality, and the new king was crowned King Philip VI. War was now inevitable between England and France, and King Edward III and his sons would cause chaos in France during the 14th century. Victories at Crecy and Poitiers made England a genuine threat to France, something that the French were unfamiliar with. The capture and imprisonment of the French King John II by the English caused the English to demand a huge ransom for his release. This threatened the finances of the kingdom and the representative of the country's merchants brought about an edict that would restrict the financial power of the French royal family. This period was in the thick of something that has been retrospectively named the Hundred Years' War and it was financially testing for both France and England. Both countries had domestic issues to placate, which significantly reduced the amount of military conflict between them. Cousins that had descended from the French King John II rivalled each other for control of France's central government, which resulted in the Armagnac-Burgundian Civil War, something that the English would look to exploit. The Kingdom of England The Kingdom of England was established on the island of Great Britain, which was inhabited by various indigenous tribes that we collectively referred to as the Britons. When the Romans attempted to invade the island, 
from the 1st century BCE under Julius Caesar. Caesar's invasions did not provide settlement for the Romans. This would come in the following century under Emperor Claudius, who made a large area of Great Britain into a Roman province. In general, the Romans would refer to their lands on Great Britain as Britannia. After the Romans abandoned Great Britain in the 5th century, leaving a Romano-Britain population behind, Germanic tribes would take to the waters from continental Europe and begin to settle the island. Angles would settle the east coast, while Saxons and Jutes settled the south. Many indigenous peoples were subsumed or migrated to the extremities of the island, which we recognise today as the modern nation-states of Wales and Scotland. The lands settled by the Germanic migrants were claimed as individual kingdoms, thus creating a patchwork of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms across the land. From the 8th century, Viking raiders started terrorising the coasts of Great Britain until the great heathen army from Scandinavia began to settle the island. Conflict arose between the remaining Anglo-Saxon kingdom Wessex and the Viking settlers, and with Wessex's expansion from the south of the island thanks to King Alfred the Great and his descendants, a new Anglo-Saxon state emerged that would come to be known as England. Parts of England remained contested for between the English and the North up until the 11th century, when a major invasion came from the north coast of France in the shape of the Normans. The Normans would seize the crown of England for themselves, bringing much in the way of French culture to the country of England. Land ownings were documented in the Doomsday Book and feudal lord became commonplace. The Norman monarchs made way for the Plantagenets who were descended from the Normans maternally and from the Angevins paternally, which continued the French origin of the monarchy in England. The Plantagenets not only ruled England and had their Angevin inheritance in France, but also married into the Aquitaine ruling dynasty, making their land holdings vast and of concern to the French due to much of the Angevin empire being within French territory. Over the turn of the 13th century, the French would start a programme of denying these lands from the Plantagenets and pushing them out of France, but they could only do this partially. The English had to deal with much in the way of civil disputes and differences with the Welsh and the Scots during the remainder of the century. But it was in the 14th century that the tensions that had always existed between the English and the French escalated when King Edward III of England had a legitimate claim to the French crown but was overlooked by the French nobility. Edward invaded France and alongside his sons, Edward the Black Prince and John of Gaunt, campaigned in France to reclaim previously lost lands and weaken the French position. Both countries experienced unrest between rival houses during the late 14th and early 15th century. The descendants of Edward the Black Prince were deposed from the throne by the descendants of John of Gaunt. The descendants of John of Gaunt are referred to as the Lancastrians. Charles d'Albret. 
As we discovered, the lands of Aquitaine came under Plantagenet rule when the Plantagenet King Henry II of England married the Duchess Eleanor of Aquitaine in 1152, just before Henry was crowned the King of England. The southern portion of Aquitaine was referred to as Gascony, with there being a possible nominal link to the Basque peoples who straddle the western border of the modern border between France and Spain. One of the lordships of Gascony was the lordship of Albrey, which is based at the modern town of Labrie. The lordship was among lands that were subject to the English crown and remained loyal going into the period known as the Hundred Years' War during the first half of the 14th century. In 1358, a man called Arnaud Amagneux became the new lord of Albrey and he would pay homage to Edward the Black Prince who was appointed governor of Aquitaine on behalf of England. However, Amagneux appears to have secretly switched his allegiance to the French King Charles V during the 1360s. This may have been because Charles had been taking action to improve relationships with the surrounding territories such as Castile, and Amanu may have feared that he was playing for the wrong team, with both England and France attempting to influence a succession crisis in Castile. This was a bitter blow for the English, who would now feel Gascony completely slipping away from its control. The French had also brought Flanders to heel, after he had been a long-time ally of the English. Revolts still took place, such as the Revolt of Ghent, at the beginning of the 1380s. The English would attempt to support the revolt, but the French prevailed. One of the men fighting on behalf of the French was the son of Arnaud Amanu, Lord of Albrey, and his name was Charles. So Albrey was now clearly loyal to the French monarch. Arnaud Amagneux died in 1401 and his son Charles became the new Lord of Albrey. In 1403, King Charles VI of France made Charles Lord of Albrey the new Constable of France. This meant that he was elevated to the highest ranks of the French nobility where he would be personally responsible for leading the French army, something that kings may have appreciated not having to manage directly. So Charles was a very highly respected and trusted French statesman. Not long after the French state descended into civil war as two branches of the French royal family, the Armagnacs and the Burgundians, began to dispute the rule of the country. When the Burgundians gained control, Charles, Lord of Albrey, was removed from his position as Constable of France. However, he was reinstated just two years later when the Armagnacs drove the Burgundians back out of Paris. King Henry V of England When Henry Bolingbroke overthrew King Richard II of England, son of Edward the Black Prince, he would claim the crown for himself and rule England as King Henry IV. Henry was the son of John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. So this marked the beginning of the Lancastrian rulers, a branch of the Plantagenet line. Long before Henry became the king, 
he had already been married to a woman called Mary de Buen, who had given birth to six children by him. She died while giving birth to the sixth. The first child was their eldest son called Henry, who was more or less a teenager by the time his father seized the English crown. Henry had been born at Monmouth Castle in Wales and as such he was referred to as Henry of Monmouth. When his father became the king, he had to deal with rebellions in Wales. The young Prince Henry would fight alongside his father against the Welsh rebels, even though he was only 15 years old. Henry would continue to be active in dealing with other rebellions within England, and he would be encouraged to get involved in matters of state. His father was clearly grooming him to become his successor. Henry IV would then struggle with a debilitating disease. It is reported that he had a severe skin condition and that he would suffer from long periods of intense illness which led to leading nobles calling for Henry IV to abdicate in favour of his highly capable young son. This didn't happen and it could have been because Prince Henry of Monmouth advocated supporting the Burgundians in the French Civil War while the king wanted to support the Armagnacs. King Henry IV eventually died in 1413 and Prince Henry would now have his chance becoming the King of England and ruling as King Henry V of England. In fact, Henry would have a very clear-minded approach to kingship. Initially, he would look to unite England by forgiving old enemies and nipping new rebellions in the bud. Henry would then focus on leading his united England into a negotiation with the French to restore England's lost lands to English possession. Predictably, the French were not interested, so Henry prepared for military invasion. Prelude to the battle Henry took about 12,000 men across the English Channel. Hundreds of ships transported these men alongside horses and equipment and they landed at the port of Arfleur at the mouth of the Seine River. The port city did not give way to Henry and Henry had to use a significant amount of his resources to force the city to surrender. He certainly had to expend more than he had bargained for. Eventually the city fell but there was a cost to his forces. The cost to his forces was high and it wasn't just the battle for Arfleur or the attritional nature of the siege but also a wave of disease which accounted for a percentage of his troops. Henry's forces may have been halved and the siege on Arfleur, although successful, was disastrous in the grand scheme of things. An assault on Paris was now out of the question and the goal was now to reach the relative safety of the Pale of Calais and get back home. By the time that Arfleur was secured, the French army led by the Constable of France, Charles d'Albray, started tracking the English army. The situation resembled that of Henry's great-grandfather, King Edward III of England, when he was moving across northern France almost 80 years previous. 
Charles d'Albray would look to avoid direct conflict with the English, believing that it would be more beneficial to pressurise the English journey from afar. If the English army weakened any more, then they would be easy pickings. The goal of the English was to keep marching on. As the English reached the Somme River, the French would attempt to block their crossing. So the English had to venture upriver eastwards as far as Saint-Quentin, where they were able to cross unhindered. The French decided then to head further north to block the route to Calais. Henry received the word from Charles to prepare to be attacked. Henry's choices were to bravely soldier north or to remain still and starve. So he continued onwards tentatively looking for the French army. Henry discovered the French army near the village of Azincourt and knew that a conflict was inevitable. Henry, like his great-grandfather before him, knew that he was outnumbered and knew that he had to be an inspirational leader with a potential solution to this difficult situation. Henry would find a position where his army would be flanked by trees to prevent himself from being outflanked by the larger French army. It was now the evening of the 24th of October 1415 and heavy rain fell from the sky, creating a very muddy surrounding. Accounts suggest that the French were celebrating victory on the night before the battle, while the English were solemnly speaking to their priests, preparing for the worst. Although it is also stated that the French were also stalling for support to arrive, despite already having superior numbers. The following morning, the French would organise their ranks into three waves or lines. The vanguard was commanded by the constable himself, Charles d'Albray. Many other nobles would jostle for a position in the glory of the vanguard. The middle contained many French archers and contained John Duke of Alençon. Behind the archers was the French rearguard. Henry was in the centre of the English formation. His uncle, another descendant of Edward III, was Edmund of Langley, the first Duke of York, and he commanded the right flank. The left flank was commanded by Thomas Camoys, first Baron Camoys. The famous English archers who had done so much damage at the Battle of Cressy back in 1346 were at the flanks under the command of Sir Thomas Erpingham. Those who were not archers were mainly knights and dismounted men-at-arms. The French had a good amount of heavy cavalry and the English set sharpened stakes in front of their archers to protect against cavalry attack. Edward III had made St George the patron saint of England and Henry V honoured St George by ensuring that his army was wearing the Red Cross of St George that is still the flag of the modern country of England. It is also stated that Henry V himself was wearing the English royal arms that we commonly know as the Three Lions. The French referred to them as leopards. More scandalous was the fact that Henry was wearing the three lily flowers, which were the arms of the French, as Henry controversially wanted to claim that he was the legitimate King of France, continuing the tradition of Edward III, 
who also claimed his right to the French throne. Of course, the French called the lily flower the fleur de lis. The Battle of Agincourt The following morning, the 25th of October 1415, started out as a battle of wits and nerve as both armies tentatively stood off from one another, trying to entice the other into making the first move. The French knew that the English would have to do something eventually, and Charles attempted to offer Henry the ability to enter negotiations with him. Henry was only interested in an outcome favourable to him, so he was not attracted by Charles's offer. It was after 11am that Henry decided that he needed to do something, so he ordered his archers to move further down the flanks of the opening to within the range of the French army. There the archers planted their spikes to protect themselves against oncoming cavalry. The rest of the English army slowly marched down the centre of the avenue towards the French. Henry ordered the longbowmen to launch their arrows high into the sky and these arrows turned into a shower of destruction for the French. The armoured knights were able to weather most of the arrows but their horses generally were not and any men-at-arms not armoured well were also vulnerable. The heavy rain had turned the battlefield into a mud bath, as horses and men alike slipped and slid around. The French did not want to retreat, but found the battlefield to be an absolute mess. The French were trying to advance in slippery conditions, and the fallen bodies of men and horses were hampering attempts to move forwards. The wooden stakes seemed to do a great job of protecting the English longbowmen from attack. Some of the longbowmen would advance beyond the stakes to capture French soldiers and take them prisoner. The centre of the French army chose to advance against the English infantry in the centre of the battlefield, which was commanded by the Duke of York. The result was a brutal and bloody close quarters battle where any weapon was fair game with troops from both sides engaged in a mud-soaked tussle in which the belligerents were battling against each other with blunt weapons. Soon, many bodies were being beaten down into the blood-soaked earth, and it is believed that the Duke of York was caught up in this melee, where he may have been crushed by a crowd and suffocated to death. We certainly know that he did not make it out alive. Despite the loss of the Duke of York, the French were clearly being overwhelmed by the English who had lured them into a trap where their vast numbers were causing them manoeuvrability issues and the English were able to pick them off. Many Frenchmen had been captured and a group of French mounted knights had managed to avoid the English front line and get behind them, targeting the English baggage train where the captured French troops were being held. The English were able to return to the baggage train and successfully defended before the captured Frenchmen were able to be freed. Henry made a very controversial decision at this point. He ordered on-the-spot executions of most of the French prisoners. Firstly, this was generally a very unchivalrous move. Secondly, prisoners had value and could be held for ransom, so their slaughter potentially denied some Englishmen a source of income. 
Henry's will was carried out though, and most of the prisoners were killed on the spot, meaning that the French would not try to breach the English front line again. Three hours of slaughter had resulted in complete disaster for the French army. The death of the Duke of York was a major loss for the English army, but things were worse for the French. The Duke of Bourbon, the Duke of Orléans and the French knight Jean Le Mangre were all prisoners of war. Both Bourbon and Le Mangre would live the rest of their lives in captivity in England. Worse still was the death of John, the Duke of Alençon, a senior commander, and at the pinnacle was the constable of France, Charles d'Albray himself. D'Albray also died on the battlefield of Agincourt on this day. Aftermath King Henry V of England's invasion of France in 1415 was a disaster. He had lost so many men in the process that there was no chance of him completing his objective of marching on Paris and reclaiming lost English lands. He was fortunate that he was able to survive the Battle of Agincourt, but he had done so with remarkable strategy and determination. His victory on that day enabled the remains of his army to get to Calais and then back to England. Once back in England, Henry understood that his victory had weakened the French military and he would be very quick to organise a new invasion of France in 1417. The Burgundians moved in to capture the French capital Paris from their rivals, the Armagnacs, who were still reeling from the debilitating and demoralising defeat by the English at Agincourt two years earlier. Henry crossed the English Channel and invaded Normandy, taking the city of Caen, while John the Fearless, leader of the Burgundians, secured Paris. Henry would then move to take full control of Normandy by besieging the key city of Rouen. The siege was brutal and left the 20,000 strong population starving and eating anything that they could get their hands on just to survive. John the Fearless provided no support to the people of Rouen. Eventually, the people resorted to casting out the poorest classes of their society, which resulted in the death of over half the city's population. Rouen eventually collapsed and submitted to the English in 1419, after six months of starvation. Henry would turn Rouen into his operational base. The Burgundians were open to negotiations with King Henry, and agreed to allow him to marry the mentally fragile monarch Charles VI's daughter, Catherine of Valois. Henry was also confirmed to be the heir to the throne of France upon the eventual death of Charles VI. Henry would take his new queen back to England, and she would quickly fall pregnant and give birth to an heir to the throne who would take his father's name. While this was happening, English forces in France had suffered a significant defeat against an alliance of French and Scottish military at the Battle of Beaujais. This prompted Henry to travel over to France again to recover the situation. But while there, he contracted dysentery and died at the age of 35 in the year 1422. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast about the Battle of Agincourt. Um, something of a, a, like a, a, a battle etched in English folklore. We, we always cite it as one of those battles that we're proud of. Uh, it's interesting to note that it's a, you know, it was almost a, on the back of a very defensive English position. So really, it was the 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 campaign as a whole, Henry V's campaign as a whole, didn't go according to plan. So quite interesting that, but um, a very very good subject to uh, to create a podcast episode about so I really enjoyed that one the Battle of Agincourt um, next week we'll be talking about the Siege of Orléans which is really famous for Joan of Arc so um, we've, we've sort of avoided talking about her in detail a couple of weeks ago during the 100 Years War episode but uh, next week will be her time to shine now, uh, if you enjoy the podcast and you want to support the podcast, you may be pleased to know that you can. You can go to the History of the World Podcast.com website, um, click on the Patreon link, and sign up to make a monthly contribution. When you make a monthly contribution to the podcast, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, our exclusive little club for, for everyone who, who makes a contribution to the podcast's upkeep. And you also qualify for rewards, and that may be gifts that um, are sent you through the post, or it may be uh, that you get a question answered during a podcast episode, or even get a, a podcast uh, episode on the subject of your choice. So go and investigate that. We have new members to welcome into the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, this week. And uh, and they are Daddy-O of Death, David Vogel and Jim Vito. So thank you very much and welcome into the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. There is now going to be an opportunity for you to subscribe um, I believe um, maybe on Spotify, I think, or or directly on Anchor. I'll have to investigate that. But you can actually sign up um, to become uh, a contributor to the podcast that way. And you get access to bonus material as well. So it might be um, every now and then we post a debrief episode where I talk about um, the subject of the podcast episode in further detail and tell you a little bit about some of the sources that we used for creating the episode. So that will become available if you're a subscriber on uh, Spotify. Or um, if also if you are on Patreon, you'll have access to that on Patreon. It's a sort of a 10 or 15 minute bonus episode. So go and investigate that. And uh, now let's move on. The Ancient World Cup. The Ancient World Cup is a competition where History of the World podcast listeners, we call you hot worlders, 
Um, vote for who they want to progress each week and we boil it down. It's like a knockout tournament. We boil it down through a system of voting and we do that on the Facebook page on the History of the World Podcast fan group. We do that on Instagram and on Twitter. Now, this week was the fourth quarterfinal and the two teams contesting it were the Athenians and the Achaemenid Persians. Two um, historic rivals in actual fact. So it's just worked out that way uh, that these two have met together in the quarterfinals. Two very fierce rivals, especially in the 5th century BCE. Uh, Now, um, let's find out what members of the History of the World podcast community were saying about who they uh, were voting for and why. Jason Drever said that he voted for Athens because he dislikes the Persians even more. So he obviously doesn't like the Athenians then. Um, Ellen Greenspan has voted for the Athenians because they laid the groundwork for democracy. Uh, Ken Brown has voted for the Athenians because of their mythology, art, democracy and Pericles. And uh, Andy Wankel wrote uh, that he went devil's advocate and voted for the Achaemenid Persians. So the idea that Cyrus the Great would foot the bill to rebuild Solomon's temple is atypical for a ruling empire of those times, maybe even today. Plus, we may never know to what extent Persia provided a link between Eastern and Western civilization. No knock on the Athenians, but many contemporary Hellenists um, marveled at Persian culture. They did. Um, so uh, let's find out the results. So um, thank you very much uh, for 78 votes this week. A very healthy number of votes. And uh, I can announce that uh, progressing into the semi-finals with 65% of the vote uh, are the Athenians. So we say goodbye to the Achaemenid Persians, the last Persian uh, team uh, in the competition. So uh, they outlasted their the Seleucids and they and the Parthians and uh, the Sasanians. So well done to the Achaemenids, but the the end of the line is here. The end of the royal road, we could say. And um, so the Athenians will go through to the semi-finals, where they will face the Romans. But uh, this will not be the next match. The the Romans versus the Athenians will be semi-final number two next week is semi-final number one and it will be between the Macedonians and the ancient Egyptians. So the Macedonians with their incredible expansion through Alexander the Great against the awesome ancient Egyptians with all of that history and um, incredible incredible dynastic uh, lineage of of that entire um, sort of couple of millennia of of culture that just continued and continues continued with the with the greatest icon being those pyramids so um that will undoubtedly be a fierce contest next week the semi-final so if you want to take part uh don't forget from monday to go to the history of the world podcast facebook page uh, the Facebook uh, fan group, which you can access through the interact section on the History of the World Podcast.com website, uh, the Twitter feed, or on Instagram. You can cast your vote and give your opinion on who you think should progress and why. Listener messages and reviews. Zoltan Golb 
uh, wrote in uh, and wrote, Dear Mr. Hasler, I'm writing this to express my deep appreciation for your incredible podcast series on world history. Your expertise in this field is simply unparalleled and I cannot tell you how much I've learned from your series already. I feel much smarter from episode to episode as a history enthusiast. Your podcast has truly been a gift to me. I looked for months to find a decent all-in-one history source and this podcast just surpasses all of them by far. I'm always looking forward to the end of the day when I can finally put on my headphones, relax and learn from you. Your prehistoric volume also made me very interested in paleoanthropology and I already picked up a dozen books on the topic. Your ability to weave together complex narratives and make connections across time and space is truly remarkable. I cannot imagine how much energy and resources you have put into this. I eagerly look forward to each episode and can't wait to see what topics you will explore next. By the way, you have an incredibly calming voice and accent. Thank you for your hard work and dedication. Zoli from Hungary. Brilliant. I mean... I, I love to receive messages from countries where I don't usually receive messages from as well. It's incredible to to think that this uh, this humble podcast, me sitting in my front room at home, uh, is uh, is sort of connecting with everyone elsewhere in the world in you know all sorts of countries. It's quite amazing. But that's a very very complimentary email. I'm not sure if my knowledge is unparalleled. I wouldn't wouldn't necessarily. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't necessarily agree with that, but thank you anyway. Thank you. Uh, Larry Swain uh, was kind enough to notice a glitch with the History of the World podcast uh, episode feed uh, where all the episodes suddenly disappeared, apart from one, which was the old unscripted episode from back in 2018. Um, but uh, fortunately, they came back, so he noticed that and he was kind enough to notify me that they'd gone and that they'd returned. He also said that um, uh, I am a recent devotee of your excellent podcast and now up to volume one, episode 23, excellent presentation, content and research. I'm not sure when I will catch up to your weekly distribution of new episodes, but I will certainly enjoy getting there. Terrific work and thank you. Well, thank you, Larry. It's very kind of you to write in. Uh, Anyway, as I said, um, you can... um, Sign up to make a monthly contribution on Patreon. There will be a special episode just telling you a little bit more about the research that's gone into the more recent episodes of the Hundred Years' War and uh, maybe a few little bits and pieces uh, regarding um, a couple of recent purchases I had to make because of a a consideration um, that I had had to think about um, with regards to posting out gifts. There's been a bit of drama in the UK uh, in relation to posting things out, so I'll tell you more about that in the uh, in the uh, um, the debrief episode. The debrief episode can be accessed um, by subscribing on Spotify and uh, by uh, or on Anchor, I should say, and uh, by subscribing on Patreon. So come and join me there if you if you want to hear a little bit more. Next week is the uh, siege of Orleans, um, so do make sure that you join me for that one. Until then, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. 
And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.